Okay, let's see if I can do this from memory. I bet I can do this. From, this can't be this hard. Okay, error is normal. Blame fixes nothing. Learning is vital. Context drives behavior. I almost said systems drive behavior. But context drives behavior. And how leaders respond to failure matters. Did I get them? I think I might have got them. That's pretty good. I didn't even practice. I mean, I just did it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I am your host at the hoster. I'm the hostage, uh, Todd Conklin. How are you today? It's good to have you on board, of course. It always is good to have you on board. So what do I have to tell you? Oh, man, today's a big day. So just be ready. Fasten your psychological seatbelts yet one more time on the podcast. So I went and saw the movie Laurel and Hardy. Uh, that was my uh, kind of get, my celebratory getaway because we just did a big meeting. Um, so I had a bunch of meetings this week. We just, just uh, did a big meeting on Thursday and Friday that was, you know, good. It was really nice. And we got together. It was a little intense. There were some intensities. But uh, once we worked through those intensities, life just chugged right straight on by. So my celebration was to uh, go to a movie. And so I went out with some friends and saw Laura. And I actually, John C. Riley rocked in that movie. I actually thought it was a great, if you get a chance, not that I uh, pimp a lot of movies, but um, that's a movie to see. It, it, the good news is I really feel like that's going to be a plain movie. I mean, I don't mean plain like in boring but plain as in jet airplane. I think that is a movie. It feel it felt to me like it feels like I'll go ahead and use present tense because you know it's still on. It feels like a movie that would translate well into the back of an airline seat, if you know what I mean. And, and that sounds oh god, that sounded. I don't mean to sound critical. It's it's kind of a good. It's a cute movie. It's um it's it's a story of Laurel and Hardy towards the end of their career, and uh, you know Laurel and Hardy. If you think about it. Pretty wicked famous, considering um, we're still talking about them now. And you know when I said Laurel and Hardy, you know who I'm talking about. You can imagine them right now. In your head, you're probably imagining them. So that was fun. And then, you know, kind of hanging out for the weekend. And uh, it's um, it's that kind of weird cold that uh, New Mexico gets. I don't know if you're familiar, but when there's not much humidity, cold um, isn't as bad as it could be. And so, you know, if it's sunny and the humidity's low, 37 feels kind of warm. 45 is almost balmy. 50, you, you're really not wearing clothes. You're just walking around naked. I mean, that's, that's pretty much how it is. That's, I've, I'm, I probably shouldn't let that out, but, I mean, that's, that's how it goes. So it, it's kind of uh, those kind of upper 30s, low 40s temperatures, sunny. So we'll make it through. The rest of uh, at least North America looks like it might be getting a little winter which is uh, unattractive, but I've said this before. If you've been on this ride before, winter's not my favorite time. Other than that, things are going swimmingly. Just had a great time with the folks in Tucson at uh, Tucson Electric Power and uh, a really marvelous time with uh, the Quanta guys. So that was that was my week in a nutshell. I mean, there it was right in a nutshell. Flew back adventure-free. Uh, you should know I did something. So I don't know how to tell you this. So... Uh, and I don't mean this, um, I'm not looking for accolades when I say this, but I, uh, I bought pizza for all the TSA agents. 
Um, and the reason I'm telling you I'm not looking for accolades is because uh, I'm relatively certain that if you go to the TSA training room, there's a picture of me, and underneath it, it says jerk. Because um, I certainly, um, how can I say this? I certainly work hard to ensure that the TSA knows that I don't give up my liberties freely and that um, that I think that it's, I, I'm not, I, sometimes I'm not nice and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that. But remember, this is the year I'm looking for good in people. And so uh, the, the whole shutdown in the United States, if you guys aren't following it internationally, has been kind of a, a deal. And the, the TSA people, well, a whole bunch of people, people that are listening to this podcast worked without salaries, no question about that. And, and my heart's with you guys. But the TSA guys, that I interface with them with great regularity. And so I thought, you know, I, this is a good chance to sort of step up the plate and, and pull my part. So I walked to TSA and then I asked the supervisor, the TSO, I know all the names for everyone, um, uh, what the best way to order pizza was. And they clearly can't, can't uh, accept pizza. I mean, they can't accept, they accepted it, but they, he couldn't give me any details. So I finally had to, using secret code, ask him what's the best time to send the pizza and how many pizzas he thought I should send. And so at 10.30 on a, uh, last week on, I, th- I believe it was Monday, 10.30 on Monday morning, 24 large pizzas of assorted flavors and colors were delivered to the airport. And the poor pizza person called me and said, I, c- I can't, they won't let me park and I can't take them inside. And so I called them back and said, you know, tell them it's for the TSA. And then the young lady didn't call me back until probably 30 minutes later. And she said, the police let me park anywhere I want to. And then they escorted me to the TSA with the pizzas. She said, I felt very important. And I'm glad she did. That's good because she delivered the pizza. The TSA guys got to eat. And um, I think it's, uh, it's just, it's just the, the right thing to do. For years of me being kind of a jerk, the payback is is uh, I provided them pizza. It was very funny, though, when I went up to the manager and said, I want to send you guys pizza. I said, you know, I'm I'm a big jerk. And the guy looked at me and he said, sir, I did not say that. But he looked at me like, <laughs> but I was thinking it. But So nonetheless, that happened. And that was a good thing to do. And uh, everybody seems happier for it. And so that little chapter of not getting paid sounds like it's kind of over, at least for a while. But that's a part of what happened. So let's let's march into the podcast. Today's podcast I, is going to be interesting. So you're, you're going to notice that I started with um, the five principles, kind of uh, the contemporary wording, the new English uh, hipster version of the five principles. I did them from memory, too, and that, that was totally real. That was from memory. Um, because I want to talk to you about a little uh, project that is finished and that is out there. And um, you can be a part of it if you want to. And that really is the topic of today's podcast. So without much further ado, let's jump in to a, a little tiny presentation I'm going to give to you um, on the pre-accident. Po- I'm sure glad you listened. Thanks for being a part of it. Um, 2019 has started strong. Oh, boy. Uh, pizza for all of us. Here is uh, here is this week's pod. So what could this secret project be that he's whispering about in the introduction? Well, if you remember, and I bet you do, about a half year ago, 
on the safety moments, I went through the five principles of human performance. Do you remember that? That was kind of a fun thing to do. I mean, we, we chatted up. We had interesting conversations for all of us. That was good. And that was a part of what happens. And um, I did that for a purpose, or for a reason. I mean, I had a purpose behind doing it. And the reason I did it is because I thought it was time to remind people of those five principles, at least on the human performance side of the equation. If you're into high reliability, maybe you don't know those five principles. Uh, and if you're into safety differently, uh, maybe it's the first time that you heard them when you heard them six months ago. And if you want to, you could go back. I did kind of these long, uh, not long, but like four-minute discussions on what the, the principles were. And I did that for a reason because, in fact, I was in the process at that time of putting together a book, and I finished it. And it's called uh, The Five Principles of Human Performance, and it's a contemporary um, revisit to the traditional five principles that started the whole human performance ride for IMPO and for the Department of Energy and, and with Tony Mashar and the gang. And uh, we looked at those and, and we said, these are valuable. And the reason they're valuable and the reason I took the time to put the book together is because these principles really are the foundation of some of the ideas, the philosophy around the Human Performance Improvement Program, or, or, or HOP. A lot of people are calling it HOP, the Human and Organizational Performance. And those five principles, um, they're the building blocks upon which this philosophy of managing uh, this socio-technical interface in large organizations that have uh, risk and do work, those building blocks are what started it all. And it's not that it's not that I believe there's one right way. I, I don't. And it's not that I'm so doctrinaire that I think we have to follow the rules and that we must never change, because I don't think that's true either. I, th I think we, we can change, and we do change, and we have changed. But I think the principles are a little more than just a historic artifact of how HOP started 35 years ago. What the principles are, in reality, are these truths, these things that we know are true and that exist in every organization. And in fact, they're so significant and so omnipresent that we can actually build our programs around these assumptions, these principles. And they're so dependable, and we can rely on them so much, that these principles actually give our program some form and a direction. It gives it, it gives it sort of a foundation upon which POP began, and these principles work brilliantly in helping us understand and manage uncertainty in the future. And so I thought, well, it can't be too – I mean, it's – I didn't really want to write another book. In fact, I, to be really honest with you, I had absolutely no desire at all to write another book. But once I started thinking about the principles, and we sat down and talked about sort of a contemporization of the language of the principles to, to shorten them so that they were more memorable and to bring them into kind of a, a, a more contemporary use – it, it really started to have value. And I noticed they crept back into lots of my discussions. And they crept back into 
lots of my observations. And I was amazed by that. And so I thought, well, okay, then we should probably write that up. And that's what I did. And um, I think you'll find the book pretty entertaining. I mean, I, th- I think it's kind of a, it's a fun book to read. It's, uh, it's interesting. And it's interesting because it really does focus on the five principles of human behavior. Th- that's the title. The Five Principles of Human Performance, a contemporary update of the building blocks of human performance for the new view of safety. And it's by me. You can get it at Amazon. They, uh, well, any place you get books, you can get it, I guess. But Amazon's got it available. Uh, and it's out there now because I saw it. Well, they sent me an email that said it was out there. And then I looked it up. And then I bought one. So there. So I bought one. And I, um, the the book really does something I think that's pretty important. And that is it takes some fundamental tenets of safety differently. And it looks at the hop principles through the lens of safety differently. So we didn't change the hop principles to change the hop principles. That's not very valuable. I mean, that'd probably be fun to do, but it's not very valuable. We actually revisited the hop principles through a lens we didn't have really 25 years ago. And that was the lens that Eric Hallnagel and James Reason and Sidney Decker and David Woods and so many others, I don't want to leave anybody out, created for us to understand how to, how to look at safety differently. And so I took really what I think are the four major tenets of safety differently. And those are pretty, I mean, I'll repeat them for you because I think they're pretty important to understanding what happened when I put this book together. So, so the four tenets of safety differently, number one is that safety is not defined by the absence of an accident, the absence of a failure, the absence of a negative. Safety is actually defined by the presence of a safeguard or the presence of a control or the presence of capacity or the presence of a positive. So tenant one is that we have to redefine safety and move it from an outcome to be achieved to actually a capacity to manage while work is being done. We get that. We've talked about it all the time, right? Tenant two says that workers are not the problem to be fixed. What workers are are the problem solvers. And that where once our programs were directed at getting the worker to try harder, care more, and be better, Now what we know is our programs are really directed around the notion that if we're going to create change, change is going to come from our ability to tap in to the profound expertise that exists within our organization about how our organization performs. The blue line knowledge, if you will, the profound blue line knowledge. That's two. Then three is that if we assume the worker's the problem solver and not the problem to be solved, then we have to no longer constrain our workers with policies and procedures and rule and regulations. We, we would tell our workers what to do or oftentimes tell our workers what not to do. In fact, instead of constraining workers now, what we're learning is we actually go out and ask the workers what they need in order to create safety in a variable environment. What do they need to do this job well, to do it safely? And that's the third tenant. And then the fourth tenant which is that safety doesn't prevent bad things from happening. 
what safety does is ensure good things continue to happen. Where once we had a bias on prevention, now what we have actually is a bias on understanding and managing what keeps normal work normal. So we could go to Eric Hallnagel's question, what happens in your organization when nothing bad happens? So those are the four lenses that I revisited the five tenets, the five principles of human performance, the five building blocks, the five foundational truths of human performance. I visited those through the lens of this new view. So, so what I said is, hmm, in the old days, we directed these principles pretty much at the worker, and we asked the worker to, to know these things and to predict where they'll fail and manage error. Now what we're realizing, in fact, is that the worker is not the problem. The problem is the organizational system. And the book starts with an interesting Oscar Wilde quote where he talks about his time in prison. And what he says is, is that atrocities that happen in prisons aren't surprises to people in prisons. In fact, they're normal. And that in the prisoner doesn't need reformed, the prison needs reformed. And even though it's kind of a stretch, and you'll have to stretch a little with me, because I, I do think that Oscar Wilde quote is really thoughtful and very timely right now. What my premise is, is that the worker doesn't need to be reformed. The work process and work system and work organization, that's what we're really focused on reforming. And so you know this. I mean, this is all a little bit of, uh, uh, of things we've talked about before. And that started the book. And so then chapter by chapter, I went through these five principles. And we talked about the, the, the five building blocks. And we, we, we start with, with error is normal. Error is normal. Even the best people make mistakes. And we know that's fundamental. And what's amazing about that is where once we thought, I think we could manage error and predict error, now what we realize is that, in fact, error is normal. And that even the best people make mistakes. And that you don't manage error. You manage the ability to have error. You, you manage error tolerance, right? The second principle, blame fixes nothing, is really a, an adaption to the idea that people do what they do based upon the encouragement and reinforcement of peers, leaders, and subordinates, right? But what we've learned is, is that when you blame, it gives the perception that you're changing somehow based upon the encouragement or reinforcement of peers, leaders, and subordinates. You're, you're somehow, um, uh, you're, you're deeming the person emotionally unfit. But in fact, in a larger systems understanding, it does nothing for us at all. And nothing, zero, nothing at all. And it's not good. Then the third one is that learning and improving are vital. We get better by understanding where things can happen, learning from them. And then we make learning a deliberate activity. That's a big part of what happens. And gosh, I, I, the, the idea that we could couple the word learning and improving is a really important part of our thinking, right? And so it's an important part of the discussion in this book. Then the fourth one is that context influences behavior and that systems drive outcomes and that workers aren't really exercising free agency in the workplace. They're, they're really not there with total control over everything that happens all the time. Workers are there as a part of a larger organizational context 
that actually influences their behavior as they perform work. You know this. We, we talk about all this stuff all the time. But the discussion there is a, is a really important discussion with a really pretty horrible case study uh, right in the middle of it. But I think it's, it's a worthwhile read. And then last but not least, how you respond to failure matters, how leadership responds to failure, how managers, how supervisors, how peers, how people respond to failure matters. It colors and sets the tone for what the future looks like. And so that discussion, I think, is a huge part of, of really an opportunity, if I, if I could say that, to sort of remind ourselves of the foundations upon which human performance was built, the, the, the building blocks, the truth, because there's truth there, and those truth, those pieces of truth, those foundational items, the principles, they matter. They matter a lot. And it helps us understand that we, as representatives of people who care about important systems, we, we have a responsibility to, to hold true to the discipline and philosophy that has taken us to where we've gotten to so far. And we know it works. I mean, that's a really important part of the discussion and uh, a pretty important part of the book. Will we be done with this work? No. And there's a discussion in the book about that. Ultimately, my guess, the most important thing that the book talks about is the fact that the work we do and the work our workers do really never stops. And that because work is constantly going on, an enlightened leader knows the power of continuous learning, of, of constantly building, maintaining, welcoming, creating feedback opportunities, and then using that continuous learning to drive forward. And what we build that knowledge on is the belief of our principles. The principles capture what we know is true. Let me read to you just an excerpt from the book, and I promise you guys, uh, when time allows me, I'll put the book up on on uh, the, the audio book. I'll get it up there, I promise. But I'm going to read to you a section from the last chapter. Principles capture what we know is true. One of the most interesting aspects of human performance is how much the principles resonate with organizational leaders. All of us have taught classes where people say, this is just common sense. Well, we know the principles of human performance must not really be common sense because if they were common sense, wouldn't we see more examples of human performance in organizations as a normal course of action? In fact, these principles are not common knowledge in most organizations, at least until someone like you comes along to help your organization realize how sensible ideas are. Human performance resonates with people, offering a vocabulary and a philosophy that makes sense. And because these ideas make sense, we assume they've already have a prevalent spot in our thinking and actions within our organization. Sadly, these ideas are not prevalent in most organizations. And it would be really easy to deviate from our human performance philosophy and to push it away from a systems approach for organizational safety and reliability to a more individual worker intervention approach which is not really beneficial nor effective. One example 
that is incredibly common for an organization to immediately dive into human performance, implementing by teaching the error reduction tools to every worker or operator. And this isn't a very good idea. Teaching tools without an issue in which the workers may apply those tools is a waste of teaching time and a waste of the worker's time. What's worse is on many occasions, after a concerted human performance tools rollout class driven by an event, these tools are then often weaponized by management by declaring, why didn't you use these tools to stop the next event before it occurred? Staying true to these five principles provides some direction and some guidelines to keep your efforts on track and progressing in a positive direction. The five principles of human performance are, in a sense, a repository of the central values of human and organizational performance. Keeping these principles at the core of our thinking and our training and our practices will allow these basic building blocks of this philosophy to help the organization reduce the philosophical drift that is present and predictable for all safety programs during all time. Having these espoused principles keeps us honest and it keeps our human performance effort on track, moving in the same direction and successful. These principles provide some operational and philosophical discipline and provide human and organizational performance structure and validity across your organization. That's just a little clip of the last chapter. I hope you uh, take some time and check this book out. I think it'll help you. Um, it's it's a it's a discussion at not the applied level like I like to write. It's a discussion around the philosophical levels of your programs and how you can take your program and develop it and understand it and really create success in your organization by understanding really where the organization ideas, that the human and organizational performance ideas come from. And using that first principles to keep your change and your program and your work and your office and the people you hang out with you, keep them in a position where we're making the world a better place. It's out there. You can pick it up, I promise you. In fact, it, it would make an excellent gift, don't you think? For everyone, an excellent gift. It's called The Five Principles of Human Performance, a contemporary update of the building blocks of human performance for the new view of safety. And you can get it on Amazon. You can get it probably anywhere, but I know it's on Amazon. Uh, it's not a big book. It really focuses just on those five distinct ideas. But it's a really important discussion for us to have. And the way we start that discussion is um, by picking up the book and reading it. That is pretty much the project I've been working on for the last six months. I hinted to it. You know I did. Go out and pick it up. The Five Principles is available for your feedback and approval. I hate that. I just hate this. Oh, it feels so self. I just don't like this. 
it's uh it's it's awkward to me to it's the reason I don't sell books in the back of the room af- after speeches is that it just feels awkward to me but I've been told that this is one you should you should I, I'm sorry I this isn't a, I mean we had a good conversation I tried to put as much value as I could possibly put in the last uh little discussion but I've been told by no one uh, by lots of people I respect in no uncertain terms that this is the best one um yet and that I should tell everybody to buy it so after feeling um, guilty because I hadn't told anybody to do it, I decided today's the day. So sorry, but if you get a chance, um, it's worth looking. The, the, the books, were, the five principles is worth looking up. I think it'll, it sort of rounds everything out and it's helpful. It's definitely helpful if you're, if you're jumping into hop and running a hop program. It's, it's incredibly helpful if you've done hop a while. So there you go. So that is the podcast for today. Thank goodness we're done. Yay. I'll be back though. There's plenty. Oh man, there's some good stuff coming up. You're going to like that. Um, and then everything else, I, I, I get, I'm going to see a whole bunch of you in February. So that'll be a good time. Shane is so dang excited. He writes me emails almost every day. It's, it's kind of weird almost how excited he is, but I think we're going to have fun. So that's, that's for sure. And remember, we're never going to be far when we're in Denver from the house of Dank. So until then, my friends, that is the podcast for today. Uh, learn something new every single day. And we talked about my new book. That's the new thing you learned today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. That's always the rule. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. I can't even believe I made it through this. This is, it's a miracle. This was a January 25th miracle.